and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Webmartin Consulting and Tax Ed to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Simon Calabria, Director of Webmartin Consulting. Simon, welcome to Tax Yak. Thanks, Robin. Great to have you here. So today we're going to have a chat about the role of contracts when it comes to dealing with tax obligations and in particular the GST. Yes, it's a, it's a, a, a bit of a field that, you know, ever since GST came in, the whole advent of looking at contracts and particularly for GST has been um, not necessarily too difficult, but it's just a constant reminder that you've got to look at every clause, look at the transactions and, uh, and, and determine what the implications are going to be. But perhaps an historical note, GST started 1 July 2000, of course, and that was a game changer for drafting contracts, particularly when it comes to property sales. So maybe just a, a brief comment on your experience. You were involved in GST back then, as I was. Um, it was a, an interesting time as we started to have to put these clauses into contracts. Yeah, in fact, it started sort of even well before. So when GST was announced in December... Um, 98. In fact, since that date, there was and there was there were teething timings through uh, uh, the implementation of GST. But certainly, by the time 1 July 2000 came around, GST clauses were well and truly embedded in contracts. Uh, and funnily enough, they, they they they've improved sort of they improved over those first couple of years. Um, and what we see in a standard form contract and a standard form GST clause in those contracts. Are typically, um, if you looked at the components, they'll look at you know does GST apply or not apply, and and in this context, let's th- let's look at this in a purchase or sale a sale contract, and therefore you're looking at it from the purchaser's point of view and the vendor's point of view. But the, the standard components you would typically get in a GST clause would be um, does GST apply or not apply? If it does, and there are adjustments, so some contracts have expenses that are taken into account, so do we take into account the GST um, after the credit or before the credit and, and, and those kinds of adjustments to the contract. And the other standard type of um, forms we find in there about um, supplies of a going concern and or farming, um, farmland exemption, uh, you'll see the standard forms for uh, margin scheme as well. Uh, and in addition to that, you'll, therefore, you'll see things about tax invoices and some of those mechanics under the contracts as well. Now, those, those, those clauses did sort of um, improve over those first few years, but what we see now is, is essentially the same. Uh, of course, with more recent, more recent uh, um, announcements and changes to the law, such as the foreign resident capital gain withholding, we're seeing those being creeped in as specific clauses as well. And more recently, again, effective from 1 July 18, is these new resident withholding rules. So those, they did evolve pretty quickly. There was a whole heap of, there was also in that transitional phase, there was a period of time when a whole, there was contracts that um, were grandfathered and didn't have GST on them until there were changes in contracts. They're now long gone. That was within the first five years. But um, today, the importance of those contract, those general GST clauses, have not changed. Um, what probably I've seen um, more recently, and okay, what are we now? We're eighteen years after GST came in place. That there are still a lot of 
parties to transactions, now whether they be the actual parties themselves or their advisors that help them, uh, that there is still, uh, I'm not going to say a lack of importance on those, but there's a very big importance on understanding what the transaction is, what the objective of the, the each of the parties and, and remembering there might be an advisor who's advising the vendor and an advisor who's, who's, who's giving advice to the purchaser, so their objectives might be slightly um, different. But when it, you know, once the parties have entered into an agreement or entered into a, a general, um, they've agreed to enter into a deal, then the draft contracts come out. When the draft contracts come out, then the parties start to finesse what they do and don't want out of these clauses. Simon, what I find interesting is we are 18, nearly 19 years into these rules. And I'm not talking about the the more recent foreign resident capital gains withholding or the GST property withholding, but the original margin scheme and, and going concern. And yet so much of the litigation relating to GST still involves property. There are still contracts that we deal with in cases in our training sessions where people get it wrong, where they haven't contemplated the right outcome, where they've misunderstood or a box hasn't been ticked or has been ticked but they're misinterpreted, I am still surprised at how many basic errors are being made when it comes to GST and property contracts. It's not that surprising because the standard clauses deal with the standard situation and and most of the time, and so an analogy we used when GST was being implemented is that for 90% of transactions, the standard contract and a standard clause probably works, but but there's a point, and you know, 90 and 10 percent, the GST is 10 percent, but that's just a 90 10 rule we used to use at the time. But and whether it's 10 percent or 15 percent, it doesn't matter. But there is a small, a smaller proportion of contracts which tend to have um, that don't get covered by the standard contracts or don't get covered by a standard clause and therefore need some sort of um, uh, change or amendment, which is where special conditions come in. And, it's, and I think what you'll find is where you get the disputes is either because the parties, what the parties have um, set out to agree in the transaction has not necessarily been correctly reflected by those clauses or they don't understand what they're trying, what from a tax viewpoint what they're trying to achieve. They know what they're trying to achieve commercially. And so a lot of what we see um, and, and stems from... When people ask advisors to look at contracts, they tend not to give them the full picture. So they might say, oh, here's my GST clause, as opposed to saying, here's what the parties have agreed, here's what the draft contract says, here's what all the special conditions say, Um, how does that work, does that work with the standard clause? Um, And that's, that's possibly one reason why you still get these disputes. But the real reason there's a dispute is that the parties, what the parties have agreed may or may not have been reflected or what they didn't transact with. Well, there hasn't been a meeting of the minds. Um, potentially that as well. So, Simon, there are predominantly three types of professional advisors who'd be involved in these sorts of contracts. There's the accountant who inevitably is often involved after the event, not during the event, but we can talk about that later. There's the lawyer and or the conveyancer. So can you briefly talk about the roles of these three people and the importance they play in getting these contracts right? Typically, I think the lawyers get involved uh, earlier uh, than um, or the lawyers or conveyances might get involved earlier rather than the accountant. They tend to be an afterthought, unfortunately, although I have noticed in more recent times um, that the role of the accountant and or the tax advisor are being called in a lot earlier. Um, And I think the role of the lawyer then is... Their domain in this sphere is that they are 
drafting the contracts or drafting the clauses at that time. Conveyances, I'm not sure whether the conveyances do the same, but lawyers typically are the ones settling the contracts, so they're the ones involved in making amendments to the clauses or adding special conditions and the like. Conveyances uh, tend to tend in in my mind tend to handhold the transaction a little more, so they might not have a they might still be involved in amending some of these clauses. Um, but certainly, from a practical point of view, having an accountant's viewpoint, and this is not um, not trying to promote my own role, but that's the role I've typically played as in a tax consultant or tax advisor's role, but not as a lawyer, not drafting the contracts. And I think it's important to note that in all of this, conveyances can't provide tax advice under the Tax Agent Services Act. Accountants who are tax agents can, of course, and lawyers can. So uh, taxpayers and their advisors need to be mindful that conveyances have limitations here. The, that's where I think from the handholding or they're managing the process of it, but rather not not putting the input or providing the input to take into account tax implications of these transactions. Um, and irrespective of whether there's lawyers involved or accountants, or, and uh, referring to them generally as advisors, the earlier they're involved, the more the better chance that there is of actually at least understanding what those tax implications are going to be after having entered into or signed the contract. The clauses we see that relate to tax and historically have been predominantly GST-based. Now, not limited or confined to GST, but they're the main ones that have attracted the attention. But increasingly, we're getting other law changes. For example, the new foreign resident capital gains withholding rules of a couple of years ago, and more recently, still GST-based, the property withholding. So can we touch on some of these um, perhaps uh, older style taxes that are built into contracts, and then we'll move to the, the more recent developments? Margin scheme. It's been yeah. there for 18 years, but how's it looking now? What are the errors people are still making? Well, margin scheme is very specific. So you, you've got to, first up, you've got to have a taxable supply before you work out whether the margin scheme can apply to it. So typically what we see um, when you've got a, a, con, a, pro, a contract of sale of property and the parties are looking to apply the margin scheme, there's, there's a couple of threshold issues. The first one is the vendor actually eligible to use the margin scheme. If they are and the parties agree to then apply the margin scheme, then there's the mechanism in the standard GST clauses that is dealt with there is that whether the margin scheme is being applied, so there's either a tick the box or insert, in New South Wales, tick the box, does margin scheme apply? It'll be a yes, no type box. In Victoria's standard form contract, you have to actually insert the words margin scheme for it to apply. And when that happens, that usually invokes in the standard clauses, standard GST clauses, um, the condition that the vendor and the purchaser have agreed in writing to apply the margin scheme. Um, one of those things, though, whether they're eligible to use the margin scheme is not found in the contract at all. So that's something that the advisors need to provide or the vendor needs to determine before they can actually enter into the contract. Having having worked out that they're eligible, that, then they can invoke the clause. And, and that of itself is not necessarily um, difficult. Where you probably do get a dispute is have the parties agreed, and this is in um, more in tune with sort of development uh, where properties are being bought to be used in a development where they're trying to use the margin scheme, is the parties might have agreed to um, a price that's exclusive of GST and if the margin scheme applies, they'll increase with a gross-up clause um, the amount of the GST calculated on the margin. Others will just say it's a sale taxable supply, um, GST inclusive, and if the margin scheme applies, 
benefits the vendor by having a, a lower amount of GST to pay. So like most contracts, there are different ways that this can be expressed. Exactly. And so that could be one avenue where you get a bit of a dispute. The, the other two in the standard form clause would be going concern um, and farmland exemptions. Now, they're specific GST-free um, provisions. Uh, again, for, going con- for a supply of a going concern, the parties need to agree in writing that those provisions apply. Uh, a little like margin scheme, you've got to take a step back and say, is it in fact a supply of a going concern in accordance with the conditions and the standard form contract allows you to, again, tick tick an appropriate box or include words that say this applies. And I think it's worth pointing out that uh, we've still got this vendor liability notion in any GST arrangement. So if something goes wrong, if something is subject to GST, when everyone thought it was GST-free or whatever the situation is, it's going to fall back on the vendor, not the purchaser. Yes. And, and unless you've got warranties or indemnities built in, yeah. you're going to struggle to pass it on to the purchaser. And the, the, the GST indemnity or, or um, warranty that has been built in was one of the more recent um, changes in those standard form contracts, uh, standard form terms of the GST clauses, uh, to provide some sort of protection to the vendor and or to give both parties certainty so they know. So, for example, with going concerns, they may not know, so they might be subject to going and getting a ruling. Um, and so they might agree on a GST exclusive price with um, the mechanisms to to change that if there is no going concern or, or, or vice versa. An error I saw recently with going concern was that someone had premises that were commercial downstairs, not being used for any purpose upstairs, was basically vacant and being used for a little bit of storage, but no actual purpose. And then they tried to sell the entire premises as GST free as a going concern on the basis an enterprise was being carried on in relation to the whole of the premises. Um, of course, they came unstuck, but that just is another reminder that going concern can be complicated. So there was a recent case where there, were, there was a sale of commercial premises downstairs. Upstairs was not being rented out. It was basically vacant, a little bit of storage. And then the vendor tried to sell the entire premises as going concern GST free. Um, the problem being that they hadn't apportioned between the two uses. In other words, the one was taxable, one wasn't. So this can be problematic when it comes to going concern. Yeah, and it's not just limited to going concern, but it, it's, a, it's about um, when you look at mixed supplies, I think you can get this uh, these difficulties. So if we take, for uh, using by, for an example, the standard form contract in Victoria, where you're allowed to pick a box or put insert the words in a box for margin scheme, or going concern, the, the standard GST clause is written in a way that it's it's an either or. But it could in fact be take that for example, take that property for example. There could have been a going concern downstairs. Upstairs may in fact have been residential. And uh, in reality, what you do is you want to apply going concern to only to the bottom part, and you might want to apply margin scheme to the top part, assuming you're eligible to use it. So if you just put if you tick the margin scheme box and the going concern box. The standard form clause doesn't really, it sort of works in terms of um, the parties uh, have agreed in writing that there is a supply of going concern and agreed in writing that there is a margin scheme, but it may not determine to which portion. But you end up with these two provisions fighting against each other. Yeah, and they may not fight, but you probably need to clarify it by potentially having a special condition that might refer how it's intended to work and for what, you know, to the extent of one part of the, that building being used for residential, it's eligible for the margin scheme, and to the extent of the other, it's being done as a going concern. 
which is like any contract, if it's drafted too simply, it's not going to cater to the more sophisticated arrangements that might involve multiple provisions. Which there you tend to get bespoke contracts, but they still have clauses that are intended to work um, as the parties have, have referred. All right, moving on to the new GST property withholding measures. These rules started 1 July 18. And for our listeners, just a brief reminder as to the mechanics of how this is designed to work. Uh, increasing concerns over many years that certain property developers were not remitting their GST correctly or at all. And so the obligation is now shifted from the vendor to the purchaser. So what will now occur is for contracts entered into from 1 July 2018, and there are transitional rules in place for pre-existing contracts, is that uh, generally at the time of settlement, the purchaser will remit the 1 11th of the contract price or 7% if the margin scheme applies directly to the ATO, generally by the time of settlement. And that amount is then credited back to the supplier when they lodge their BAS. So a couple of points on the mechanics. The purchaser is required to fill in a couple of forms. They're called Form 1 and Form 2, and you can find those on the ATO website. They don't have to register as such for GST. Once they make the payment to the tax office, the ATO holds it in a special GST property credits account. Now, this is in favour of the supplier, but it's not visible on the portal, which means the tax agent, the taxpayer, they can't get in or log into anything to see that it's there. They can ring the ATO and the ATO certainly sends out an email to confirm that it's there, but you're not able to see it yourself. Then what occurs is when the supplier lodges the BAS for the tax period in which the property was supplied, they short pay the BAS amount by the amount of this credit. So they still report the normal amounts on the BAS, the supply and the relevant input tax credits, but they physically short pay the amount. And then once it's lodged, it's all supposed to come out on the wash because the ATA will match it up to the amount that's sitting in this GST property credits account. I've got two concerns, Simon, and I have raised this for the ATO. Only two? Only two, well, this point only two for our purposes today. I'm concerned that there's no visibility of this account and it shouldn't take much with all the technology to make it visible. The reason they're keeping it separate is so the amount in the account isn't available against other liabilities of the vendor. I get that, but it should be visible. And secondly, there aren't many credits that we claim in our entire tax system where you're not reporting an amount on a box or a label somewhere on a form or a statement. So to have this amount simply taken off what you pay without reporting it in a box, that worries me. Well, Your th- thoughts? This, <laughs> there's a whole, there's certainly more than two issues in here, but I'll try and address um, your specific comments first. It, it makes sense that if an amount's been withheld and the ATO is aware of it, that they should um, either have that pre-filled in. That, to me, that sounds not much uh, different to how the GST deferral on import, imports works. So there is a mechanism for that for that to be there. Now, that only comes up if you've got an amount being withheld, but whether it's a box you have to f- physically fill in or if you're doing it on the portal at least, you should be able to see that that, that amount um, comes in on that relevant BAS. Uh, that would make sense, and I can't see why. I'm not sure what the theory behind that is, but that would certainly make sense. Um, the, the second thing is that, yes, there always is a box. So if they're not going to do it that way, then you should have another box where you probably can put it in. Although these days there's only the short form basses are pretty, pretty short and they're lacking in detail anyway. Um, but it, that probably only puts an onus back onto the taxpayer um, surprise, surprise, but to have good record keeping. 
And maybe if you're selling one property in the tax period, fine, not difficult, but you could be a property developer selling 100 of them. I was going to get into that part as well. I'd actually like to backtrack a bit because there's more than two issues, but um, these rules, interestingly, and they are making their way, there are standard wording being included in the in the standard form contracts across all of the states to deal with resident withholding. Um, they're not all the same. It's the same as the standard form contracts all have a different format. They don't all deal with all aspects, either commercially or necessarily what's dealt with in the law. What is interesting with these new provisions, um, not, not only is there a withholding requirement on the purchaser, so it's the purchaser that's required to withhold and pay to the tax office, you mentioned Form 1, Form 2, Form 1 being a notification that they do have to make a withholding. Yes. Form 2 actually being the payment and notifying of the withholding and the payment being made. But there's also an obligation on the vendor. So the vendor actually needs to make a notification to the purchaser as to whether there's a withholding at all. What's missing um, in the, the knowledge base of a number of practitioners out there is they don't realise that the notification is regardless of whether there's actually GST payable. So you could be selling your private home to me. I buy it. Neither of us are registered. It's just a private supply, not a dollar of GST in sight. But you face major penalties up to $21,000 as an individual if you don't notify me that I don't have a GST payment obligation. Yeah, I think that's because the way the provisions are meant to work is that they're trying to have as a default position that there is a withholding obligation. Interestingly, these provisions are quite narrow. And in, in fact, if, if the vendor is not making a taxable supply, there is no withholding requirement. So it doesn't take much in for the vendor notification, the big stick penalty there to make sure that if there's no taxable supply, there's no withholding required, that's incumbent on the vendor who wants to get fully paid to actually give the notification. And the notification is pretty simple. So that mechanism, I can understand that mechanism being built into the standard form um, contracts uh, and that makes absolute sense. So... With there being obligations both on the vendor and the purchaser, um, as mentioned, we are seeing these this standard wording um, in the standard form contracts from across the states. Uh, there's a lot of commercial aspects in there. So there's commercial aspects as to whether... Um, so the, it's more the process, I guess, that's being applied. When payment gets made, you know, do the parties com- contractually notify each other is there a contractual obligation you know the ATO says you've got to fill in form one form two is there a contractual obligation for the purchaser to that you know acknowledging to the vendor that they are going to fill in those forms they are going to send those forms they're going to send um, confirmation to the to the vendor so that the vendor does have that evidence if the ATO is not going to allow them to have some pre-fill in the back of the bass they're going to live and die by the evidence available to them contractually. Well the ATO confirms these amounts have been paid back to the vendor so they can't claim a credit until the purchaser has paid but I think there's also an issue if the contract is silent because let's say a situation it's all been missed hasn't been included and there are penalties imposed on the purchaser if they fail to pay, and that's their separate issue. But a situation where they do pay, but it's not in the contract, the contract says, I owe you a million dollars, but I've already paid a hundred grand to the tax office as the purchaser, and I shop at settlement and say, oh, by the way, here's the other 900,000, I'm just ignoring the deposit for the moment. And you say, oh, hold on, you said you're gonna pay me a million dollars, and I said, well, I am, I'm giving 900 to you, and I'm giving a hundred grand to the ATO. This is where it's so important for the contracts to reflect the fact that I've paid the tax office directly. It, it, that's that's the part where I think um, 
it probably just highlights now more than ever any contract um, for purchase or sale of real estate and real property in Australia. Standard GST clauses have been there for a long time. We're all aware of what they're meant to, meant to be and what they're trying to do. These new withholding provisions um, are another sort of ball game again. And we're probably only now starting to see the basses that are taking those credits through and there's going to be a little bit of teething. Let's just hope that um, common sense can prevail. So the reality is that vendors and their advisors and purchasers and their advisors just need to be vigilant that they're fully aware of the different GST-based clauses, since that's what we're focusing on here, but really all clauses, um, and and the obligations that they each have. Uh, I would not make an assumption that the clauses that are in these standard forms are going to meet the requirements of the parties. Like they should still take the time to review it to ensure that it meets their commercial objectives. And this is irrespective of the new provisions or a standard GST clause or otherwise, um, because it is important to understand what is the transaction, what are they trying to achieve from an objective point of view, and ensure that commercially they haven't left something out. And if I could use a chippy terminology, we should be measuring twice and cutting once. So in other words, taking the time to review these clauses before contracts are executed, before they're entered into, is going to save so much time and grief later if things are found to be incorrect post-execution. Yeah, well, at least if you give yourself the best chance to, uh, to achieve the outcome that the parties, um, whether you be the vendor or the purchaser in this case, but at least then the, let's not make GST or any other tax consequences, uh, you know, the, the surprise. And whilst today, I just um, whilst today we focused on the GST issues because that's what you see in terms of the clauses and that you know non-GST in terms of say the foreign resident capital gain withholding we saw that from a couple of years ago, so that's not necessarily GST based but they have been embedded into but the, the mechanics contract. are very similar to the GST property withholding arrangements. They're in the same parts of the uh, of the Tax Admin Act in terms of being a withholding requirement. Um, but yes, but there's you know the the, the parameters in which they apply. Um, are slightly different. They probably don't have as much of that obligation on the vendor. Agreed. Um, they do in terms of those exemption certificates and, and, and that, and that um, process. Well, that's the added complication. You're dealing with a foreigner, but bear in mind, foreigner is loosely defined in this context because it includes anyone who doesn't have a clearance certificate. So Australian resident suppliers can still get caught up in those rules, of course. That's right. So the default there is if you don't have the, don't have the exemption certificate, then the default is that withholding is going to apply. The reality is, again, it's one of those checklist things and maybe this is, uh, you know, all, whether it be lawyers, conveyances or accountants are assisting their clients um, with entering into transactions, maybe their checklists should be looking at, you know, what's the standard GST clause saying? What does the resident withholding clause say? What does the foreign resident, you know, capital gains withholding apply or do we have a clearance certificate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so the housekeeping here is becoming more and more important because there's more things in contracts. I was about to say contracts are getting more cluttered, aren't they? They're always busy, but now we've got additional tax obligations that just keep being imposed on either the vendor, the purchaser, or even both. Yeah, well, that, and, and that's very true. That's, uh, that's very true. Um, you know, we haven't we, we focused on GST, I guess, when less so on things like income tax and stamp duty. They're all still very relevant, and and the tax outcomes are cons- typically consequences after having entered into the contract. You mentioned earlier that 
often, too often, the, the accountants or other other advisors doing tax returns at the back end for these these contracts don't see the contracts until they're well and truly completed. That's well, compliance season. It could and, be 12 months later. And so that's why when you focus at it from the GST viewpoint, at least it puts it front of mind when they're entering into it in the beginning. Any final comments or observations, Simon? Um, get it right? <laughs> well, not everybody's going to get it, get it right and they're not going to get it right all the time, but you can at least give yourself the best chance by... Go, I'll, I'll reiterate it again. We do it so many times. Understand the facts of the transaction and what are the parties trying to achieve. Um, that usually puts you in the first... Um, so what are their intentions? What are their intentions? That puts you in the best best position up front. Um, and then from there, when the parties are negotiating the fine details before they sign the contract, um, seek advice, seek early. Thank you, Simon. Really appreciate your insights today. Thanks, Robin. Before we wrap up this episode, we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for your support so far and for all the great feedback you've given us with a special offer. On Wednesday, April 3rd, Tax Banter will be conducting our annual webinar on the federal budget. And we're offering all our TaxYak listeners a 10% discount when you register with promo code TaxYak19. That's one word, TaxYak19. This offer is only being offered here to our valued TaxYak listeners and we hope you continue to enjoy our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. 